Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, John Hudak tells us what's happening in Congress. Congress this week saw something rare, particularly in the context of its own recent history, and that was a good working relationship between the Senate and the president surrounding trade promotion authority, a type of authority that will allow the president an expedited means of negotiating trade agreements across the world. In a a rare set of circumstances, President Obama and Senate Republicans are aligned quite a bit on what that policy should look like and how it should move forward. And the stumbling block that the president has had has mainly come from Senate Democrats, particularly progressive Democrats like Elizabeth Warren. Throughout the week, however, the president has done the hard work of negotiating with the legislative branch and it has resulted in some unique outcomes. One is an expected deal by which this will pass largely with Republican support and a small amount of Democratic support. But also, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has come out praising the president through this move, not simply because they agree on policy, but he's praised the president's approach, management, and negotiation of this agreement throughout the process in a way that he said in one interview that he found to be an out-of-body experience. That said, it appears that a major piece of American public policy will be passed, uh, particularly through the Senate, but the Congress uh, appears to be ready to move forward with trade promotion authority, and the president will certainly sign the bill. Not to be outdone, however, or fall victim to bipartisanship, the House uh, has worked over the past week to do what it does best, and that is provide very conservative public policy. And in a move that sort of countered what Congress has been doing all week, the House passed legislation surrounding abortion, which many in the Republican Party, though support on record, it is an issue that many would rather not have to deal with. But the Republicans in the House certainly passed it. Its future in the Senate is unclear, but it is certain that the president would veto any such legislation. And so this week in Congress was marked by some of the politics of the old, social policy, divisive policy, and some politics of the new, and that is a Senate majority able to work with its Democratic president. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening in Congress. My guest today is Christia Freeland, author of the latest Brookings essay titled My Ukraine, a personal reflection on a nation's dream of independence and the nightmare Vladimir Putin has visited upon it. Freeland is a journalist, author, and politician. She was a stringer in Ukraine, deputy editor of The Globe and Mail, and has held positions at the Financial Times, ranging from Moscow bureau chief to U.S. managing editor. As an activist Ukrainian-Canadian, she has written several articles criticizing Russia's interventionism and supporting Ukrainian independence. Freeland is author of Sale of the Century, a book about Russia's transition from communism to capitalism, and the award-winning book Plutocrats, The Rise of the New Global Super-Rich and the Fall of Everyone Else. Since 2013, Freeland has been a member of Canada's Parliament, representing Toronto's Centre in the House of Commons. Thank you for joining me today, Christia. It's a pleasure to be with you. The title of your Brookings essay is My Ukraine. What does Ukraine mean to you? Well, I wanted to talk about my personal connection with Ukraine as a way to let people into the wider story of Ukraine. Um, 
my Ukraine is really a story of political exile and return. Uh, my mother was born in a refugee camp as her fl family fled Ukraine after the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Mm -hmm. That was 1938, 39? 1939. Okay. Uh, and her family, uh, like many Ukrainian families, uh, managed to immigrate to the West, in my family's case, to Western Canada, to Alberta. And they were quite a special uh, immigration, uh, similar to the people who immigrated in those years from the Baltic republics, mm -hmm. in that uh, they saw themselves very self-consciously as political refugees. Um, they believed, I think rightly, uh, that Ukraine was uh, being repressed by the Soviet Union, um, both as a state and that also the Ukrainian language was being repressed. And they saw themselves in the immigration as having a duty to keep the Ukrainian spirit alive. So I was raised in a community that believed that. Uh, it often, I think, seemed absurd uh, to people who weren't Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. um, you know, imagine how people felt in the 60s, 70s, 80s about the idea that the Soviet Union might collapse and Ukraine might emerge as an independent state. And I still remember very clearly, I uh, went to Harvard and I studied Russian history and literature. And I remember when I got to Harvard thinking, you know, oh my God, I was raised by these crazy people. Um, and my smart Harvard professors see how the world really is. And these visions that my grandparents, you know, who spoke English with a heavy accent and so on, and their friends had about what was going to happen with Ukraine were just an immigre fantasy. And then, of course, 1989 happened, and then 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it turned out my grandparents, with their heavy accents, were right, and the Harvard professors had been wrong. Wow, I, that's, uh, that's amazing. And one reason why this uh, essay resonates with me so much is that uh, one of my personal passions is family history and the story of how my family came to America. But uh, the story of your, your grandparents and your mother's family and your uncle um, coming to Canada and, and settling there but then going back, uh, it really resonates uh, with me in a special way. As a child growing up, how did you connect with your Ukrainian heritage? Did, did you eat Ukrainian food? Did you hear Ukrainian stories? Yeah, I was raised to be very Ukrainian. Um, I was born when my mother was in university, so my maternal grandmother uh, took care of me when I was a baby and a toddler, and Ukrainian was my first language. I spoke Ukrainian before I spoke English. Uh, and then I grew up speaking Ukrainian, eating Ukrainian food, dancing Ukrainian dances, uh, drawing Ukrainian pisunki, the Ukrainian Easter eggs, and going to Ukrainian school on Saturday, which is the bane of the existence of the Ukrainian child. And indeed, my three children were speaking on a Friday. My three children will be complaining when I get home this afternoon about how they have to go to Ukrainian school tomorrow morning. Did you know any of your Ukrainian relatives uh, when you were a child, maybe distant cousins? The Soviet Union was authoritarian, even totalitarian, in a way that I think is hard for us to appreciate today. Um, we know China to be, for example, a communist country, um, but travel 
is pretty easy, and although their censorship communication is pretty open. Uh, the Soviet Union of my childhood, of the 70s, um, was a much more closed and repressive mm-hmm. state. So my grandparents, especially my grandfather, who had a, a huge family in Ukraine, tried to stay in touch, but there were years and years when he couldn't be in touch. My mother took me and my sister uh, together with one of my aunts. We went on a trip to Ukraine in 1980. And that was the first contact between our Ukrainian family and our Canadian family since the Second World War. That that must have been an incredible meeting. It was amazing. It was really amazing. They were amazing people. One of my grandfather's sisters uh, was a Catholic nun, and the Ukrainian Catholic Church was one of the strongest forces uh, opposing uh, the communist regime. It went underground. It was the biggest underground church uh, in the Soviet Union. And it was an amazing thing for her to, she um, was was a novice uh, nun when the Soviets invaded. And, and for all those years, um, she continued to serve in the church. And we met in her apartment we were followed around by KGB agents. Our family was questioned when we left. You share in, in the essay that both your mother and your uncle Bodan, am I pronouncing that right? Bogdan. Bogdan. Uh, Very good. Wow. Uh, I, disclosure, I, I studied Russian in college. Um, okay, in that was politics. a very good accent. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, they were both born outside Ukraine, uh, but they, they moved there in the 1990s. Why did they move back, and why in the 1990s? Well, for, for different specific reasons, but the same general reason which really animated um, much of our immigrant community. Um, we were really, the, the community had this strong sense uh, of a responsibility to preserve Ukraine in exile, uh, and a strong feeling that if the Ukrainian community in the West didn't do that, Ukraine would be crushed. And that sounds pretty histrionic. Uh, In many ways, it turned out to be true. Um, One example that I find very striking is that the history of Ukraine that was written by a professor at the University of Toronto, you know, the city that I now represent in Parliament in Canada, became the official history of the Ukrainian Department of Defense. Um, It was the best one because the Soviet histories were so falsified. Mm -hmm. So think about that for a minute, that it was a a history written by a Ukrainian-Canadian academic um, that was imported back into the country. Uh, Another example, I think, of the connection the immigrant community felt is Natalie Yuresko, who is a friend of mine, who is today the finance minister of Ukraine, and she grew up in Chicago. She's completely American. Uh, she went back to Ukraine in the early 90s, um, worked for the U.S. government for a while, and then set up one of the most successful private equity funds in Ukraine. After the Maidan revolution, she was invited to join the government as finance minister, um, which was in many ways, you know, a thankless, daunting task. Uh, but she took it on, and so she is now Ukraine's finance minister. 
And uh, you make a really fascinating point. I totally didn't know this uh, in your essay that Canada's Ukrainian community numbers about 1.25 million is larger as a percentage of its national population than the, the Ukrainian population in America. So that suggests why it, it's such a uh, kind of a powerful force in Canada and for Ukrainian identity. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And, you know, for me, I grew up in Western Canada. The the prairie provinces of Canada have the biggest proportionate share of Ukrainians. So where I grew up, it was absolutely normal to be Ukrainian. Um, You know, I don't know, maybe um, the way it's normal to be Italian on Staten Island or something like that. Um, Ukrainians were sort of the dominant ethnic, the dominant non-Anglo ethnic group. Um, Pizza Hut has pierogi pizza. Mm. Uh, One of the small towns in the area, um, their big sort of symbol of the town is this massive 20-story pisanka or Ukrainian Easter egg. So I grew up in in a community, in a culture where you know, if you weren't Ukrainian, you knew someone who was Ukrainian, it was a really normal thing. And uh, it was a bit of a shock to me when I left Western Canada to discover not everybody was familiar with Ukraine and Ukrainians. Now, let me ask you again about your uncle. Um, now, he and your mother, as as you describe in the essay, went there uh, in the 1990s when I presume there was a, a strong hope for democracy. The, the people had just voted to um, break apart from the Soviet Union. Um, and then you also write that you were there uh, last year in 2014 when the, the, the Maidan was, was full of people and the president fled Ukraine, Yanukovych fled Ukraine, um, and you were in your uncle's apartment. Uh, have you talked to your uncle since then? Um, does he have hope for the future of Ukrainian democracy? Yeah, no, I talk to my uncle all the time. Um, Look, the Ukrainian national anthem, the first line of the Ukrainian national anthem is Shchenev Merla Ukraina, which means Ukraine has not yet died. Uh, Think about that for a minute. (laughs) You have to have had a pretty crummy history if the way you begin, you know, you're sort of meant to be inspiring anthem is to say, hey, we're not dead yet. Uh, So the history of Ukraine and of people who feel connected with Ukraine is of lots of downs, um, lots of moments when things don't go right, uh, but somehow sort of remarkably uh, a commitment to keep on trying. And I think for people, for, for the Ukrainians in Ukraine and also immigrate Ukrainians like my mother, like my uncle, who decided to go back to the homeland of their parents and make a life for themselves there, but also try to make the country better. You know, there have been moments of exhilaration since 1991. There have been a lot of moments of extreme frustration and disappointment. I do think that now the Maidan um, and what has followed is the most hopeful moment ever in Ukrainian history. And I say that despite the fact that it's also the moment when Ukraine faces one of its biggest threats mm-hmm. in the form of an invasion from Russia. It seems almost contradictory. And, and I want to follow up on, on that word itself, invasion, because uh, I think a lot of people don't 
conceive of what's happening there as an invasion. It's uh, maybe uh, local Ukrainian people who are Russian speakers or more ethnically connected to Russia rising up on their own. Um, there's this little green men, and we had Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin, not admitting until he did admit it eventually, but not admitting to the takeover of Crimea as it was happening. Can you talk about the sense of Ukraine actually being invaded? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the smartest and most effective things that the Russian propaganda machine has tried to do with Ukraine is to frame the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, really between Russia and Ukraine, because it's initiated by Russia, uh, as a civil war inside Ukraine, and to frame it as a fight between Russian-speaking Ukrainians and Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians, that sort of thing. Uh, that was never true. Uh, a few data points to help place people. You know, prior to the Russian invasion of Crimea, uh, there had never been a an indigenous separatist movement anywhere in Ukraine. Ukraine had been independent for 23 years. There was no separatist movement in Crimea, or yeah, and much less so in the Donbas or in the southern regions of Ukraine. The people who came in, these little green men, these were Russian soldiers. And what's sort of remarkable, I'm, I'm glad, um, is as of this March, Vladimir Putin has now admitted it. So, you know, there used to be a debate. Um, you had to, you know, cite your evidence against these Russian propaganda claims. But now I think we don't need to even waste our time with that because Putin himself, in an interview on a Russian state-sponsored documentary that was broadcast on Russian TV to celebrate the annexation of Crimea, said that he personally took the decision to invade and annex Crimea. It was him. He led a cabinet meeting, and he said at dawn, at the end of the Sochi Olympics, it was an all-night cabinet meeting, mm -hmm. he gave the order to invade Crimea. So really, I think we don't have to waste more breath on that. Putin has now said, look, who was the guy who did it? Right. He seems to be quite proud of it. Right. Well, let, let me go back to the language issue for a minute. Um, you write in the essay that the linguistic factor, Russian and Ukrainian, is a real but oversimplified explanation for the divisions inside Ukraine. Can you explain for the listeners more about the um, the Russian and Ukrainian languages and how they, they operate in Ukraine? Yeah, Ukraine, the language situation in Ukraine is complicated and I think tends to be very badly described in the West, partly because there are very few Western reporters who speak both Russian and Ukrainian. And so most of the Western reporters writing about Ukraine don't actually understand the situation. They, they don't know who is speaking Russian, who is speaking in U Ukrainian, and in which context those languages are spoken. Ukrainians today are really a truly bilingual country. I think they're are very, very few people in Ukraine who don't have a passive understanding of both 
Ukrainian and Russian. And you see that reflected in things like television, where it's quite common to have an interview where the interviewer will be speaking either Ukrainian or Russian, and the person answering will speak the other language. In Parliament, deputies speak both Ukrainian and Russian interchangeably, again, without translation. So the assumption, and it's a true assumption, is that everyone in Ukraine understands both languages. And that's not true of Russians. So a Russian coming to Ukraine um, will not understand Ukrainian, but a Russian who is, a, a, say, a Russian speaker born in Ukraine, grown up there, will understand uh, Ukrainian. And I actually, um, I benefited uh, from this when I studied Russian at Harvard, because it turned my Russian language teacher was from Ukraine. She was a Russian speaker mm. from Kyiv. And I still remember on my first oral exam, the way that I uh, learned how to speak Russian, I think the way this must be true of many Ukrainians, is I just sort of adapted Ukrainian to mm. how I thought Russian sounded. And Anna Solomonovna gave me an A on my first oral exam. The American-born Russian teachers afterwards said, we couldn't understand a word you were saying, but she told us that it was the southern version of Russian. Oh. Because she could understand me perfectly since she had grown up in Kyiv and was familiar with Ukrainian. I, I wonder, just so listeners can hear the difference between the Russian and the Ukrainian, if you could just read just the first sentence of the whole essay in both languages. Okay, I will translate first in Ukrainian. So that was Ukrainian, a rough translation. Ukrainian scholars, I apologize for any mistakes I made. Uh, and now let me try Russian. Uh, Thank you. Analogized Ukrainian and Russian as maybe Spanish is to Italian. Yeah, I I um, went to school after high school for a couple of years to an international school in Italy, and there were a lot of the other students were native Spanish speakers, either from Spain or from Mexico or from other parts of Latin America, and they were able to learn. Uh, Italian, you know, a workable Italian in about a month or two months. I found as someone who grew up speaking Ukrainian that I was able to learn Russian, you know, get at least a working passive understanding mm -hmm. in about that amount of time. So th that's why I use that analogy. People who have never, a Russian speaker who's never heard Ukrainian um, or a Ukrainian speaker who's never heard Russian will probably struggle, but it's much easier to learn Russian if you speak Ukrainian than if, say, you only spoke English. I just want to quote uh, from your essay. This kind of sums it up for me. In short, being a Russian speaker in Ukraine does not automatically imply a yearning for subordination to the Kremlin. 
any more than speaking English in Ireland or Scotland means support for a political union with England. And I'll commend reader, uh, listeners to go read your essay to uh, get a lot more depth from you about this linguistic situation. I think it's really interesting. Thank you very much, um, Fred. And I do think, um, I think that's important. And I think what's interesting is, uh, and I quote some of the Russian language, ethnic Russian writers who are so important in Ukraine right now, that you know, one of the paradoxes of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is it has strengthened this notion that there exists a political Ukrainian identity, which is quite separate from your ethnic identity. The other thing which I think people maybe don't always fully appreciate about Ukraine is the extent to which there has been a fluidity in language for not just today, but that's something that's historic. Uh, certainly my grandparents, uh, particularly my grandmother, who was from central Ukraine, uh, spoke Russian, Ukrainian, and also Polish interchangeably. She was equally comfortable um, in all of those languages. And that was quite common for many Ukrainians. No, it's it's extremely interesting. Uh, there's so many interesting parts of this. I want to move to another one, and that's uh, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. You interviewed President Putin in 2000, just after he became president, I think, the first time. It leaves me wondering, what was that like to interview him 15 years ago? Um, did you or anyone else at the time have a sense that he envisioned this uh, Novorossiya at that time? Uh, I certainly did not imagine he was going to invade Ukraine. Um, but I've looked back at what I wrote then after that interview and also what I wrote uh, in a later edition of my book, uh, Sale of the Century, about the rise of Russian capitalism, where I did talk about Putin. And I was pleased to see that I actually um, was worried then about Putin's inclination towards authoritarianism uh, and about the danger that he would use nationalism as a justification for authoritarianism. So I think the signs were there from the beginning. There were reasons not to see them. Uh, the chaos and the corruption of the Yeltsin years uh, were truly breathtaking. And it was possible to hope that Putin's authoritarian tendencies were, you know, in some ways benevolent, that they were about cleaning up that chaos and that once, you know, then the sort of the fantasy was uh, that, you know, the reformer fantasy was once he had done that, then he would go on, you know, maybe a la Singapore or a la Chile, um, and then you would see uh, a Russia that was cleaned up uh, become freer. That isn't, however, what we've seen. And I think that for the Russian economic reformers, for the Russian liberals, uh, their big mistake, beginning actually in the mid-90s, was to believe it was not only okay, but perhaps even necessary to sacrifice democracy for economic reforms. Uh, in the end, in making that choice, I think they've ended up getting neither. That's an interesting dichotomy because I, I think, tell me if I'm wrong here, I think in your essay 
uh, you're suggesting that in the Ukrainian experience, although their democracy has gone forward in fits and starts, they've established a better track record for a Ukrainian democracy than they have had in the past 20-something years for a strong Ukrainian economy. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Ukrainian original sin was sort of the mirror image of the Russian one. Um, if you go back to 1991, the there was, you know, we can forget this now because Russia looks so dire and the Russian liberals seem so outnumbered. But if you go back to 1991, there was a genuine, powerful Russian liberal impulse. That's a big part of what tore the Soviet Union apart. And I think that Yeltsin and certainly the liberal reformers around him genuinely wanted a profound transformation of Russia. Their choice was, their belief was that the the single most important imperative was the economic transformation. Nothing else really mattered. In Ukraine, you had two different groups coming together. One was uh, sort of a dissident community that had been fighting for Ukrainian independence, many of them uh, suffering tremendously in Siberian prisons uh, for many years. And they then formed an implicit alliance with the Ukrainian communist elite as it became clear that the Soviet Union was falling apart and that Ukraine could capitalize on and even accelerate that collapse. And so in Ukraine, really the trade-off was that the liberal dissidents would postpone their demands for a true political transformation of Ukraine in exchange for the communist elite backing Ukrainian independence. Uh, Let's go back to uh, Vladimir Putin and his nationalism for a second, uh, kind of bringing us back to the present. You know, we we see um, the possibility of continued... Uh, Russian involvement in eastern Ukraine. I think the Minsk Accords are uh, perhaps um, falling apart again. Should other nations that have large Russian-speaking populations be concerned, like Armenia or the Baltic states? They should be concerned, and they are concerned. Uh, the And exactly the ones you mentioned, I think the Baltic states in particular um, are very worried, and they ought to be worried. Uh, What we've seen from Vladimir Putin is an assertion of a so-called right to defend Russian speakers outside Russia's borders. And we've seen, in the case of Crimea, that means outright annexation. Now, having said that, I think we also need to hope and work towards a Russia which is constrained into choosing a more moderate path. I think that Putin and the Kremlin have actually been surprised, first of all, by the strength of Ukrainian resistance. I think they expected, after the ease with which they took over Crimea, I think they expected southern and eastern Ukraine to fall to Russian rule as easily, and they haven't. And I think they've been surprised at the Western reaction, even if some of us might feel it could be even stronger. In particular, I think the sanctions from Europe have been a surprise to Putin. So I I think it's possible to hope, and we should work towards this scenario, um, that 
Putin will at least call a halt now and will try more subtle means of undermining Ukraine. But the bottom line for, for Vladimir Putin, is he afraid of something? What, what do you think uh, his, his, his big motivation in all of this is? I think his big motivation is preserving power at home. Um, Putin has tried really hard, and a lot of Western analysts have gone along with this, to present what's happening in Ukraine either as a big geopolitical play and as Russia seeking sort of so-called compensation uh, for its humiliations since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, or as a civil war inside Ukraine, uh, or as some kind of, you know, uh, imperialist humanitarian gesture protecting the Russian speakers of Ukraine. None of those are at the heart of why Ukraine is such a threat to Putin. What is happening in Ukraine is a tremendous threat to Putin's Russia, precisely because of the kinship that Russians feel with Ukrainians. If Ukrainians can successfully establish a democratic, prosperous market economy, as as the polls have done, that has such a powerful demonstration effect on Russia. And that is really what Putin is afraid of. I'm trying to uh, dredge up my Russian history class, but you uh, you mentioned this in your essay too. I mean, sort of the 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 soul of ancient Russia actually starts in Ukraine, the Kievan Rus people, right? Well, there are many many debates about um, which is the successor state to Kievan Rus, and Ukrainians would say, "Hey, it's we are the successor state to Kievan Rus." After all, it was in Kiev. But it's certainly the case that the first powerful, organized state in the lands of the Eastern Slavs was in Kiev, not in Moscow or St. Petersburg or Novgorod. Uh, and it is definitely the case that many Russians like to trace the beginnings of their state to Kiev and Rus. So, yeah, there, there, there are connections. And... Much as some people like to argue that, you know, maybe Chinese culture uh, doesn't fit with democracy or Muslim culture doesn't fit with democracy, there's an argument you can hear that perhaps Eastern Slavic culture uh, doesn't fit with democracy. The Ukrainians are Eastern Slavs, and if they can succeed in establishing an effective economically successful democracy, then it's very hard for anyone in Russia to believe that somehow the Russians are unable to do that. And, and that is really why the why Ukraine, the Maidan, is such an existential threat to Putin. You hear it very much right now from those few brave remaining Russian liberals. For them, what's happening in Ukraine is really, really important because it shows that it can be done. Again, the, the essay that you've written uh, is, is fascinating in that it makes us consider history, but also the present, geopolitics, and, and all, these, all these things. It's wonderful. Um, so on the politics of Ukraine right now, uh, the, the relatively new government uh, in Kyiv, led by Petro Poroshenko, uh, how are they doing? Are they, uh, is he doing a better job, I would hope, than uh, Yanukovych, or is it too early to tell? 
uh, they're definitely doing a better job than Yanukovych. It would be very hard to do a worse job. I'm cautiously optimistic about this new government. Uh, and above all, I am hugely optimistic about the power of civil society, which was the force that drove the Maidan um, and is still there, is still active, and is not letting the government let up on reforms. Uh, it's hard. The Ukrainian economy suffered very much, both from the dislocation of the Maidan revolution and then from the war with Russia. But I am really hopeful. I'm hopeful that real economic reforms are happening. Uh, the fact that three foreigners have been put in three key economic ministries is a radical break from the past. And it, it, it's a symbol, but it's more than a symbol of the commitment of this government to try to break with the corrupt practices of previous Ukrainian governments. Um, so I, I am medium-term uh, really quite hopeful about Ukraine. The other thing that we're seeing, which is really, really hard, but so far the Ukrainian government is making progress there too, is to move from an oligarchic economic system to a rule of law economic system. And what has really complicated that transition is many of Ukraine's oligarchs are also patriots and were central in the effort to push back against the Russian invasion. And so to take you know, these powerful forces on at a time when the country is unstable and under threat has been a risky thing. So far, the government has made some real progress doing that. And crucially, um, the oligarchs, as they have been confronted, have, you know, started to pull back. I'm not saying they've been delighted about it, um, but you haven't seen Ukraine descend into sort of economic warlordism, which is what some people had feared. Well, it's good to hear you express um, optimism, albeit perhaps guarded, but still optimism. I want to come back to the personal because, again, your essay, your experience is very personal. You've mentioned that you're raising your children to speak both English and Ukrainian. Have you already, or, or do you plan to, to take them to Ukraine someday? Uh, absolutely. Um, my two eldest children have been to Ukraine oh, several times. Um, I'm just trying to count. My eldest daughter has been to Ukraine quite a few times. She went to summer camp there actually without me. Uh, a couple of summers ago and really liked it. My 10-year-old has been there too. Uh, and my 5-year-old five, my actually went to Ukraine. I took him to Ukraine when he was just six weeks old. So all of them have been there. Uh, and yeah, it's, um, I think they do feel a strong connection. Actually, today, um, my son's kindergarten class uh, every Friday has a parent come in as the mystery reader and you read a book to the children. And we chose the books together 
uh, this morning, and he chose a Ukrainian book. So we read an English book, and then he showed off the Ukrainian alphabet as well to his friends. Oh, well, that's, that's, uh, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. I want to thank you, Christia, for your time today and for contributing uh, your story to the Brookings Essay Series. Uh, it has been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. You can follow Christia Freeland on Twitter at C.A. Freeland. Her Brookings essay, My Ukraine, is on our website at brookings.edu slash myukraine. There you can not only read her compelling story, but also see maps and photos, learn more about the recent history of Ukraine, and find out what a solid gold loaf of rye bread has to do with it all. Thanks again to Thomas Young for his help in preparing for this interview. And as always, my thanks to my producer, Zach Colzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahin.